Uh, we want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode 147 for September 11th, 2019. My name is Jason Eifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located in the Phyllis J. Washington College of Education on the University of Montana campus in beautiful Missoula, Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Dr. Fryer. How are you this evening? Good evening, Jason. I am well, coming to you from Oklahoma City, where we did not hit 41 degrees as our low last night, as I understand some people north of us did, but we are still very much in our summertime. And I am the first technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School, where I have served as the director of technology for four years, and I've had this opportunity to pivot to educational technology. So uh, we want to give a shout out, look at that, to Peggy George on YouTube and Eunice Menja coming to us from Facebook. How cool is that? And we want to encourage everybody to check out our show notes at edtechsr.com slash links. What are these notes, Jason? What are we going to try and do for an hour here on our regular Wednesday evening get together? Well, the EdTech Situation Room is a podcast where Wes and I take the headlines from the technology media, and we try to shoot them through an educational prism. We don't always get there because we are both geeks by maybe trade or upbringing or something along those lines. And sometimes we get distracted by the glitz of technology. But tonight, lots of interesting things. You can go to, as Wes mentioned, our website, edtechsr.com, and see all the links we talk about, along with a lot of stuff we don't get to, simply because we get excited about the stuff that ends up in that document. So please go to our website where you can find all that information. And Wes, I'm going to go ahead and guess that there's probably one topic that, well, at least half of users are very excited about, and we'll probably spend some time here, especially as it relates to schools. But it's my understanding yesterday in California, there was some sort of event related to technology. Do you know anything about this? Yes, I think so. So we have our regular flurry of Apple excitement with news and all kinds of things about about new phones. Um, so we do have a number of articles about that, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But I will say first that uh, I think my new philosophy for purchasing Apple devices, which, yes, we got the used Apple watches, you know, and loving it. Oh, my gosh, it's just fantastic. Um, well, I'll do that first. If you're going to listen or see anything at all from the Apple event, uh, there's a video that I put a link to. It's called Dear Apple Face-to-Face Apple Watch. And no kidding, Apple Watch has literally saved people's lives. You know, people have fallen down. It is called 911. It is called a spouse. I mean, someone just the other day was telling me a story that was very tragic of someone who had fallen in their home and ended up being there for a long time before somebody found them. And then they actually ended up passing out, passing away. They died uh, because of those injuries. This Apple, they are master storytellers, right? And so my themes for the last few years have been uh, in terms of professional technology in schools, be safe, be connected and tell stories. So number one, this is a phenomenal video from just a digital storytelling standpoint where there's multiple people telling their story, unwrapping it, B-roll video, but it's also absolutely heart, you know, uh, touches your heart. And I think that it's important to remember, right? Because there's so much negative about technology. We're probably always on the show going to, you know, talk about some security things going on, some 
some hazards of screen time, some some of the downsides. But this was a really, really positive video, um, obviously focusing on the transformative ways that, that Apple Watch and Apple technology, you know, has, has improved our lives. So, Jason, I know you are not an Apple Watch user. You've said that those friends and folks you know who switched to the Apple Watch have really loved it. Uh, what is your watch situation in terms of personal as being the Android the Android guy on the show and uh, any, any thoughts? Have, have you pondered possibly an Apple watch? Cause you haven't had an Apple watch exper- experiment yet. Have you? No, I have not. And I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I, I <laughs> of anything in the Apple lineup that might get me back into that ecosystem. I think it's the Apple watch. And so I'm currently wearing an LG Urbane, which is a four year old watch now. And I, I, Apple is kicking Android Wear up and down the watch universe. And I actually own two Apple Watches now. The Urbane is one of them. And I also have an older, um, I think it's an Asus watch. And I bought it used on eBay a couple months ago because I, I like the square design. I couldn't believe uh, that, that, honestly, the Android moved away from it because I think Apple made the square design cool. And I like how sleek it looks on, on an arm, right? But the bottom line is, is that we are uh, in an era where the watch is really the next frontier, I think, of, of devices, right? Not that we've hit peak cell phone or that we've hit peak um, really anything uh, in the Apple uh, universe, you know, laptops, tablets, phones. I, I still think there's innovation left there. It's going to come a lot slower than the first generations of phones, but... Watches are a lot of stuff to go, and I'll be very frank that the whole notion of the health component of the watch is extremely tempting to me as an end user because the one thing that my watch does, I mean, the Apple Watch does really well, too, and the reason why I moved away from a Fitbit to back to Android Wear is that this is showing my my blood sugar. So I have a, a constant glucose monitor that's that's stuck into uh, various parts of my body at different times, and it talks to my phone. My phone talks to my watch, and I love the fact that I can uh, take a look, um, you know, at, you know, blood sugar on, on a regular basis without having to open up my phone. And it buzzes me when it gets low or high, which is the point of a con- constant glucose monitor. But I think that that plus the steps, which is part of it, although any any mobile or any wearable at this point is, is, a, is a pretty competent step counter, but the heart stuff is really tempting to me. And, you know, I don't, I, I can't imagine going back to the Apple universe in that way, right? Because for me, it would have to be an Apple Watch. It would also have to be an iPhone. Um, I might go back to an iPad at some point anyways, because I think the tablet experience is vastly better on Apple than it is on Android. But be frank, I'm much happier on Chromebooks now than I was on the, at least the last generation of, of MacBook I have. So I think the wearables are extraordinary. And I think Apple is very smartly playing that. And you mentioned earlier, Wes, but I do not know a single person that tried an iWatch that's not still wearing it. And I don't know anyone that wears an Android watch, anyone, not a single person that wears an Android watch. And so for me, that, I think that's a sign of, 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 you know, how much Apple is dominating in this arena. Hey, we want to give a shout out to Jeff Bradbury. And wow, we have seven live viewers. We may be uh, breaking all records uh, tonight. Uh, we want to let you know that the streaming platform we're using tonight, which is called StreamYard, 
uh, also works with something called uh, Restream, and that is allowing us to go both to Facebook and to YouTube. So we can see your comments. If you want to put any of those into the chat there in YouTube or just the comments that are underneath the video in Facebook, and we will give those voice. And if you want to ask any questions, chime in with your own thoughts and perspectives. We want to welcome that. So before I go to the first uh, Apple News article, I, I want to mention that my philosophy, and I love Apple stuff, right? I've loved Apple stuff before it was cool to love Apple stuff. But um, I really don't think that it's worth paying a $1, $1,000 for a new phone. And I really think that the the quality and the performance of technology, whether we're talking about a wearable phone or a smartphone or even a laptop is or tablet, it's such that that you don't have to have the absolute latest and greatest. And so the website we've used now several times, thanks to Michelle Freeland, our head librarian at school, is swappa.com. And so I put a link into the notes because uh, one of these articles, this is actually the iMore article from September 11th from today, 11 things you may have missed at Apple's iPhone 11 event. One of them was, you know, how prices were dropping on the iPhone 8 and the, uh, you know, even trade-in value is going to drop it to about 299 So Swappa for iPhone 8, not iPhone 8 Plus, uh, but it's got prices at about 290 And so I think that's a, th those price points are, are, are getting to a good spot. Um, our youngest daughter uh, had an older iPhone, in fact, in her friend group. Uh, she was, I think, the last one to have an iPhone 7, and or no, 6. And so we found an iPhone 7 on Swappa. Uh, for about a little over 200 bucks. She's listening right now, so now she knows how much it was. So, oh, she had a 5. Okay, there you go. See, we're getting corrected right here on the show. She had a 5S. <laughs> so, but I think that's a good way to think about, because, you know, a lot of the news from Apple was just kind of like, yeah, 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 the camera's better, the processor's faster, there's more pixels on the screen, the screen's a little bigger. I mean, those are the, the things that we tend to just hear a lot of. There's more than that, but but those pieces of it, I think you need to or probably want to upgrade at least uh, two steps up. So, for instance, um, my wife is on a 6 uh, plus or 6S, so uh, going up to an 8 would be a really good move for her. So I put that link to Swappa.com. Um, that's where I got my Apple Watch. I used um, Generation 3 Apple Watch. And so uh, probably the best article that I've read uh, on the Apple event yesterday was from 9 to 5 Mac. And this is titled Opinion, My Take on Everything Apple Announced Yesterday. And this is, I think, Ben Lovejoy. Um, and, and those kinds of uh, articles, actually, after events like this are kind of great because somebody who's an, you know, quote unquote expert has gone through and filtered, filtered through all of the noise uh, to really identify some some key pieces. And I will say, continuing with our watch discussion, the fact that the new watch OS is going to work on all versions, even going back to two and one, um, the article indicates it's going to take a little bit longer for the iOS to, to drop and function on the generation two and generation one watch. But wow, that is really fantastic um, because you really don't reach end of life until the manufacturer stops supporting it and you stop being able to get updates. Um, so yes, Apple, Apple watch five is gonna, you know, um, it has an always on display. Um, it has a titanium finish, yada, yada, yada. I don't think any of that is really earth-shattering. Earth if you want to think about some of those life-saving features, you do want to step up to the four. 
because the 4 has that EKG and it's got those features of automatic dialing and calling. Um, and I know that the, the health and safety benefits of that has a number of people looking at Apple Watch, not only for themselves, but for their their older parents um, or, you know, grandparents, as the case may be. And so anyway, those were um, that that was definitely um, uh, a highlight. But probably the and the one I'll ask you about this, Jason, that was surprising is finally Apple dropped their streaming service or they announced their streaming service. Um, and so uh, Bloomberg has an article from September 10th. Apple prices TV and video service at four ninety nine a month um, hitting Netflix. So Apple is undercutting. And they both, they announced both their streaming TV service as well as their gaming service. And so both of those are $5 a piece. So Jason, do you have an Apple TV and are you going to be tempted to jump into either gaming on an Apple TV, Apple device or the new Apple TV video streaming service? I'm not particularly tempted by, uh, the gaming component of it. I cannot remember what generation my Apple TV is. It's, it's, it's relatively recent, last two or three years, but I do think that the, um, uh, that the streaming service is something I'll be tempted enough to, to, uh, jump onto, right? Um, I, I find that price to be competitive. I do have multiple streaming services. I do use Netflix and Hulu. Uh, so I have both of those available to me. And then during the months of the year that Silicon Valley on HBO, uh, is a streaming, I also, uh, will buy HBO Go or HBO Plus or HBO, whatever the, the one is where you don't subscribe to it. I haven't had cable in almost a decade now. Um, and have relied only on streaming services, but then I get my other HBO watching in when I'm watching the, the Silicon Valley show on HBO. I, I love the show that much, but you know, I, I, it is very tempting. I am, um, and I, I, I think I know the answer to this. It's only available on iDevices right now, right? The Apple TV, the Apple streaming service is only on the Apple ecosphere, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think you, well, but I mean, you can do it on any of your devices, so you don't have to have an Apple TV, but you need, oh, okay. you need an iOS device. And that's part of what Apple is trying yeah. to do. And they've been, they've done that with the app, the Apple TV OS, TV OS uh, updates is this new app and across all your screens and what's showing and, you know, trying to, to help bring together fractured content, which is in a variety of different apps yeah. and channels, but then yeah. they're kind of providing you this single pane of glass yeah. to say, Hey, I'm subscribed to these services. And I also have these other free channels. You know, here are things that I can, uh, I can get Peggy, by the way, is put into the chat. Um, she's tempted on the iPhone eight as well, but maybe a new model trading in her, six plus, you know, that may take the price down to around $300. And I'll say that's attractive as well, because if you do get a device off of Swappa or some other used marketplace, keep in mind that the battery very well may need to be replaced. I think that for the iPhone, it's about 70 bucks. Um, they did decrease the price when they had that situation uh, months ago in terms of Apple slowing down older devices. Um, and whatever, Apple made it cheaper to be able to just, you know, go into the store and get a new uh, battery. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I don't know that I'm tempted really either. I don't I don't watch a lot of TV. So uh, other members of yeah. our family watch the the most TV. But um, I will cert I will say I probably watch more YouTube. And that's, you know, I'm it's I'm not a victim. I think I'm a beneficiary of the YouTube algorithm. But the whole thing about, you know, recommended videos and, you know, being drawn in and, and that kind of thing. But I have two thoughts about the, you know, at release of, of, of Apple um, streaming service. <clears throat> We're probably getting more bang for our buck today for Netflix than 
we are going to in our lifetimes because, you know, right. Disney's going to be taking their stuff into their streaming service, which is going to be coming and, and the landscape is fractured. But I think it's very rich for content producers. Um, there's a lot of hand wringing, right? When people are, are cutting the cable and they're not, you know, subscribing to the traditional, you know, cable plan. Um, having exclusive content, you know, on Netflix or on Hulu or now on the Apple streaming, um, it's going to, you know, pose some challenges. But I think that from a consumer standpoint, it's probably going to be positive. Um, you know, we're seeing Apple continue to diversify into other kinds of services. Um, I think that probably what's most interesting is gaming. The fact, and, and this, I didn't watch the, this last event, but in the previous event, they said that Apple TV is going to be compatible with other kinds of game controllers, which we happen to have some Xbox controllers at our house. I think also it's PlayStation. That's really interesting, right? That there's going to be this compatibility with different kinds of controllers. So what Apple is, is playing now on the uh, the streaming gaming service, and then Google is doing as well. I think Stadia is the name of Google's platform. That's right. extremely interesting um, because we've got such internet speeds in urban areas. This isn't everywhere, right? The digital divide is real. But if you've got, I mean, we have a we we pay for a 300 megabit down uh, cable connection from from Cox Communication, our local cable provider. I was actually just looking on my Google Wi-Fi app uh, last night because it'll it'll tell me what my average is for like the last week or two. Um, because those speeds are so high, we can now get very low latency in games. And so this is really ushering in a new era for gaming systems where you're not going to have to buy a console and make that investment in I'm a PlayStation family or we're a Nintendo Switch or we're a Xbox or, or maybe you have more than one. But I think that's probably the more interesting phenomenon, and it's going to be also really interesting to see how that plays for kids. And I'll just say this, Roblox, if you're not familiar with that, is hugely popular uh, with young kids. It is chock full of advertising. In fact, I don't even know if you can opt out of that. That's something I want to learn a little bit more about this year as we talk about digital citizenship and things like that. So I think the play for gaming is going to be the most interesting one. Um, but we're probably just going to continue to see this fractured, you know, nature of, of not being able to just say, hey, we just have Netflix and that's all we need. You know, uh, we're going to be challenged to have additional services. And I'm sure what companies would love for us to do is get back to that $100 a month or plus yeah. whatever that was, you know, paying it all for cable. But at least if we can get more niche content that is actually more interesting to us rather than, you know, 400 channels with, you know, few, you know, uh, overwhelmed with how many choices there are and, and maybe not finding a lot of great content, certainly not on demand the way that we can do now, which is, I think, a real game changer. Right. Well, and the one thing I'll mention about the, the proliferation of cable, um, cable channels, you know, 15 years ago, my, the thing I used to joke about was that at any given time, there was at least 16 networks playing Shawshank Redemption, right? Like, so that they, we, we're kind of headed towards, you know, popular content gets shown over and over again anyways. And I think we are in a much more diverse era when there are easier ways to get to market for shows that don't fit within the traditional 20 minute or 40 minute boundaries of the half an hour, an hour long show with commercials. And I think that's better for us for entertainment. So, Wes, there's one other thing I want to mention because it, it did relate specifically to education in yesterday's announcement. Uh, there is a new iPad, so the base iPad, um, and I've seen a couple of different articles about this. One of them talked about that's basically the core iPad, so the standard iPad model that's in an iPad Air um, 
uh, an iPad Air form factor. And it's also interesting that that's their bottom uh, uh, priced iPad, that the 32 gigabyte model, which would be perfectly Perfectly fine for, for I think the standard user is going to run you about $325. And then, um, I believe that that the educational price for that is $299. And I do find that to be a very competitive price for schools. And especially if you don't need to store a bunch of really heavy apps or you're not trying to store a bunch of media on that iPad, um, video or, or editing on the iPad. It's a compelling platform for, for, uh, you know, relatively inexpensive. And the thing I love about iPads is that they do last a long time. You keep them in a holder and they, you know, the glass doesn't break or you don't have any physical damage to it. That can be a five, six, seven, eight-year device in schools and still be very efficient. So, Wes, I, I actually don't know. Do you have purchasing authority with your new Evolve position? I was, just talking, I was just talking to somebody about that today. So, um, yeah, I won't name any numbers, but let's just say yeah. it's a radical difference, you know, from from the last four years to now. But it's yeah. good. I mean, for a lot of good, good trade offs. So uh, I'm certainly still in the loop as we talk about those kinds of things. Um, we, we had a situation which also I won't go into in detail, but uh, basically I have been uh uh, reorganizing and, and, uh, getting reinstalled, getting a lot of apps reinstalled on our school, uh, mobile device management. It just reinforces again how much more complicated the Apple ecosystem is relative to Chrome and Chromebook. So if you've been in enterprise IT and you've had the, the opportunity, I'll say it that way, which I think it is actually to know both managing Chromebooks and Chrome devices, managing iOS devices and then other platforms, right? So we have Mac OS, you know, laptops and, and iMacs. We've got uh, Windows laptops and desktops. We're a diverse ecosystem. Um, you're right that the return on investment and the length of time that you get to use an Apple device, whether it is an iPad or it's a laptop or a desktop. Uh, my, my lab right now, I've got five-year-old iMacs. Actually, I think this is their sixth year. And we, we bought solid state drives because they're, they're so right. uh, speedy and wonderful. And I really don't, for what we're doing, which is mainly the web, we don't really need more, right? So we're going to be able to, I think, postpone that, uh, that upgrade. But you're right. It's a, it's a good price. There's really not a lot of shift though in terms of performance and what you're going to see. I think it's a slightly bigger screen on the newer iPad, but it's still, I think, an A10 versus an A12 processor. Uh, it uses the generation one Apple pencil, uh, which is still fine. Um, the weird thing about that is that, that you have to, you have to stick that pencil in the end in the, on the uh, lightning charger or whatever of the, of the iPad. So the newer, you know, iPads, you go ahead and just, it magnetically, you know, attaches here. Um, but you know, this iPad is coming at a very premium price and I don't think honestly for schools, you know, we need this. Um, so I think that Apple is, is wise in terms of pricing with, with several of these things, right? We're not just seeing them price themselves at the high end of the market. Um, and if, if somebody's considering an iPad, you know, it's, it's going to basically be the same price as it was. And it's almost the same iPad. It's just a little bit, you know, incrementally better. What is your last iPad? Don't you still have an iPad mini? An old iPad mini two is the one I'm rocking. And I'm it's, to update that. 
it's pretty solid. I mean, I will say that, and I paid a lot for it at the time. Like the, the equivalent iPads today are, are half the price than they were. And I purposely bought one. And then, then it was 64 gigabytes of space. And I also wanted one with a, with a 4G slot in it. So I could, I believe that I had it on Verizon at the time. And I like being able to have always on internet on that, you know, and I, I have to say, I've now used a variety of, of, of Android tablets. And again, I'm a Google guy. I've used a variety of Android tablets and nothing even comes close. And I I think there's some opportunities there. I wish Google was still in the tablet business. Um, they keep trying to flirt with it for a while. It was Android tablets and it was Chrome OS tablets. I probably would have been a consumer for the second generation of the Chrome OS tablet, but they pulled the plug on the whole project. Um, and that, that saddens me a little bit. But when it comes to especially mostly a consumption device, I don't um, I honestly I don't have enough opportunity to produce uh, for personal purposes. Most of my production happens at work and my Chrome OS system and I also have a Windows laptop do just fine for both of those. But um, I, I I like the iPad. It's still a great device. And I'm also probably my mom's got an iPad 3. So that's a uh, uh, what that's a seven, six, seven year old iPad. Now my dad uh, asked for a laptop when a couple of years ago when we were updating devices. And I think he's getting to the point where he would prefer an iPad as well. These new iPads, the 2019 iPad. Um, I still don't like, I wish they had the simpler naming regime, but the 2019 iPad would be, I think, great additions for my parents. And again, what I like about that is that I can buy that for them. And for five or six years, it's going to be a perfectly serviceable device for a casual user like my parents. So I'd say great day for Apple yesterday. Um, you know, expectations are high. The fact, and I know that Peggy George in our chat mentioned this, that the new iPhones are, have lower price options. They seem to be shying away from this $1,000 plus marketplace, which, you know, Google's moving away from that. Or at um, least not staying there, right? There's still yeah. devices at that price point, but that's yeah. you know, not where they all are. Absolutely. Although I will mention, I didn't put the article in tonight, but I did, and I did not click on it to know enough about it, but apparently the one terabyte um, iPads, I think those are iPad Pros, uh, have, have dropped in price as well. I don't know if that's permanent or if that's temporary, but I think, I think manufacturers, device manufacturers are getting the hint. The one thing I'm concerned about, and, and we, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but the trade war will increase the prices of many of these devices at some point unless that situation gets resolved. And again, not a politics podcast. We like to mention that once a week that we're not here to chat about politics, but that will have an unfortunate impact on schools if that happens. Maybe we can give ourselves a personal challenge to find out what kind of our new or updated statistics are on iPads versus Chromebooks versus other devices in schools. I would yeah. I'd be interested to see uh, see that. Uh, my perception is that, uh, you know, Chromebooks continue to be ascendant and yes. iPads are, you know, continuing to struggle as far as being the, a one-to-one device. Right. I know personally, and when we think about staff, you know, this iPad for a school context is, uh, in terms of staff and faculty, I do not think is a laptop replacement. But depending upon your usage, this could be your parents, you know, grandparents. If you, if you're a light email user and a heavy web browser and video user, the iPad is a fantastic platform. And by the way, it's very secure, which is important. I don't know how many people have, have either themselves or help friends deal with security issues. I've helped, you know, some of our administrators at our school and, and recommending people with older parents 
viruses, malware, the stakes of all that are just higher, right? The more banking and financial transactions and, and, you know, debit and credit cards and things like that that we put online. So don't also underestimate the importance of security and, you know, all, you know, making sure your devices are updated, but also maybe transitioning to an iPad or a Chromebook, you know, versus a full blown Windows PC, certainly, or even a, a Mac OS computer that's just going to require a lot more updates and, you know, we'll have more uh, possibilities of having some kind of a security vulnerability. Right. Absolutely. All right. Well, what else was happening besides Apple? I think there were a few other news headlines this week. Is there something else happening other than Apple? It tends to suck the air a little bit out of the tech news. So, yeah, a couple things to share. Let's do some security-related news. Actually, no, um, this one's kind of interesting, a little bit nerdy. I found a great article from Hackaday on September 9th about the Raspberry Pi 4. And I'm not sure if we covered this device or not. It was released a couple weeks back, but the new Raspberry Pi 4 is out. It has a lot of interesting updates to it. If I remember correctly, it now utilizes USB-C for charging, which I think is a great advancement to that. But Hackaday did a... Uh, a, a, an interesting analysis on the Raspberry Pi 4, and the question they asked themselves was that could it be a desktop replacement? And the reason why I mention this is because, um, you know, I, I, I get a little scared when people use that term because the last thing I would want is for someone to perceive that they could buy, you know, a large truckload of, of Raspberry Pis for schools, and that could be the independent um, uh, computer access for students. But it's super exciting, I think, for people that run makerspaces or otherwise build uh, interesting builds with Raspberry Pis that, according to the Hackaday article, that it is advanced enough and fast enough that it felt normal as a desktop replacement. Uh, the a writer wrote that he was using Chrome. Um, it's a Linux-based install, the, the standard uh, install you can download for Raspberry Pi. It's many options, but the standard download is a Linux-based operating system, and he installed Chrome. He was able to easily surf you know, a dozen or so tabs, had a YouTube video going on in the background, and with four gigs of RAM, he felt like that the platform didn't slow down. And I just mentioned that knowing how popular that device is in makerspaces, in a lot of computer science and science classrooms across uh, the educational landscape, and it's really great to hear that device that used to be kind of ridiculously cheap but slow is still ridiculously cheap but is advanced enough that it can really run some serious operations enough to run a desktop. So if you're a makerspace person or you're otherwise using Raspberry Pis as a computer science hardware component, the 4 is awesome. And if we want to get our crystal balls out as far as like the future of computing in schools, uh, a shout out to Tommy Snyder, who is our uh, debate coach and also works in our IT department. Um, he had a Windows phone a few years ago. He's now, you know, back to Android phone. In fact, I think he has an essential phone, perhaps. Anyway, I mean, he's able to plug in his Windows phone at the time directly into a full-on keyboard and mouse and HDMI screen. And that idea that, hey, this is what I need. If I need a keyboard, I need a larger screen, I just plug it in. I mean, it was full-blown Windows. It wasn't a, a smaller version. So I think it's going to be super interesting to see the continued march of consumer technology, right? Because that's where the price points really come down and the volume is there. And then how that interfaces with screens. I kind of think there was even, maybe he's gotten front one for his Android phone, something where you plug your phone in. Maybe that was still the Windows phone. But anyway, it was like a laptop shell. And 
you just jacked your phone into it and then you, you know, had your full blown keyboard and everything to do. So anyway, we're not there yet, but, um, I agree. I think the Raspberry Pi is a phenomenal technology. The capabilities, the fact that somebody's just even writing an article to say, could this be a desktop? I mean, does who remembers the one laptop per child, right? OLPC. Uh, I have one of those somewhere in our garage. Uh, I think it hasn't been thrown out yet. You know, and, and so many people so excited. Uh, about a device that really had paltry processing power and graphics capabilities. And of course, the internet was just at its infancy at that point as well. So we're just continuing to see, you know, this, this capacity, you know, grow and grow. And, um, I think that Raspberry Pi, if you're not having an opportunity to have your students explore that in your makerspace or other classroom is definitely a technology worth checking out. Cause how, what do those run? Or is it like, 40 bucks or is it even less like 25? Yeah, I think if you, it's, it's probably a little more closer to 50 or 60, but that, that's with a kit. And so it comes with a case and all sorts of other pieces that are, um, you know, make it a, a functional uh, computer. I have a, I think I have a three generation back Raspberry Pi in a box that I've played. I was going to build and I probably still will at some point a retro arcade machine, um, box that I could plug into a TV and I happen to have a, uh, hardware, big USB, um, uh, joystick console thingy for, for, for retro arcade games. And, uh, that's the technical term is thingy. But, uh, my partner in crime at work, Mike Augustinelli and I like to play old school NBA, arcade MPA jams. So that's, uh, uh, something that we'd love to get going and, you know, for the slow times, you know, that never happened at work. So, but yeah, Raspberry Pi is a great, great, great platform for that. And I've seen a lot of really wonderful stuff at the NCC conference in Seattle. There's a, been some exploratoriums that have featured, you know, great makerspace stuff and the stuff kids are building and nearly autonomous robots and all sorts of interesting stuff uh, that, that are student driven. So cool stuff. That makes me think, uh, ISTE, uh, proposals are coming up. Uh, we should put in an ISTE proposal. Man, we should, we should put in to do a live ed tech situation room. I bet we could do some interesting things with, uh, back channel chat and a live show and, uh, streaming. That might be fun. Sure. All right. Uh, let's pick up a quick one on media literacy. This is Bloomberg Business Week on September 6th. Can influencers improve Saudi Arabia's image? Um, I want to give a shout out to my friend Brian Turnbaugh, who I met uh, in Providence, Rhode Island at the Summer Institute on Digital Literacy. And he is continuing to feed me some fantastic articles on basically a weekly basis having to do with uh, a lot of disinformation and social media uh, weaponization, but also uh, just you know media literacy. So uh, we have talked about this on the show. A lot of folks do believe that Jamal Khashoggi was murdered by the crown prince, uh, or what is the prince that, yeah, of, of Saudi Arabia. And so, uh, yeah, Saudi Arabia has a bit of an image problem. And so this article talks about how there's this Los Angeles travel blogger, uh, blonde, tanned, and often posing in a swimsuit, Los Angeles-based travel blogger, Aggie Lal, might not seem the obvious person to sell the virtues of Saudi Arabia, yet this spring she was sharing updates with more than 800,000 Instagram followers as she explored ancient Saudi ruins and frolicked in the desert. So the headline picture is this shirtless guy with a mask and head covering and a sword, which just is weird if you think about kinds of, of videos and things like that that have come out of the desert uh, with the wars and, and uh, conflicts that have gone on. 
but especially given the conservative nature of Saudi Arabia, um, I, I think this is something important to talk about, right? Our, our kids today, teens, are being influenced more than ever by non-mainstream media personalities. Those can be folks that use primarily a YouTube channel, an Instagram channel, maybe all different kinds of channels. And so here is Saudi Arabia, you know, trying to portray itself. They're going to start issuing tourist visas, pardon me, I think for the first time. And um, there, there are some things that have been done to open up a little bit the conservative uh, laws there. Um, but I think you still have like a, a travel restriction if you're a, a woman in Saudi Arabia having to get a, you know, the permission of a male. And this isn't like under 18 stuff. This is like you are a woman living in the country. You can't just, you know, book a, book a, a plane flight or whatever and choose to leave. So, you know, super interesting. So Jason is, I know that you are a, a travel, um, you know, personality extraordinaire, definitely getting to see some amazing places. Is this little series by Aggie Law going to convince you to put Saudi Arabia on the NIFER bucket list for travel? Uh, that general region has not made it up. Oh, I just not true. I would love to go to any of these countries, to be frank. But I think the I, it goes back to a discussion we've had a couple of times is that YouTube's just such a challenging topic and it, it from, from a variety of different perspectives and YouTube and social media, uh, you know, we talk a lot about empowerment on this podcast. We love the fact that technology empowers kids, right? We like students to share the story. We like students to share their message. Wes is famous for, uh, uh, uh empowering people to tell stories. It's a, a big part of his, his, his worldview, but it, it all this comes with a complication, right? That just because everyone has a, a means of broadcasting, it means that everyone has a means of broadcasting and not everyone will bring inspiring true stories to, to play. And in fact, in a lot of cases, those, uh, pieces that, or the, those, those abilities to share in, a, with wide audiences will ultimately create, uh, the opportunity for propaganda and the opportunity to push people's views in a way that it's not fair or even, uh, balanced in the way those things happen. Now, Wes, you'd mentioned earlier that you felt like your engagement with YouTube, um, that it's not edging you towards being more radical. And, and, and obviously, um, you know, the, I'm already pretty far out there on that spectrum, I guess. So yeah. where else are we going to go? <laughs> yeah. You're the radical, right? So we should just be careful about you. So the piece that that's always interesting to me is that, um, you know, the, the, what YouTube recommends to you, we talked about this in the past, you know, tends to, there's research on this now to back this, this broad notion that it tends to create things, or I'm sorry, recommend things to you that, that nudge you into the direction so that you think maybe a little more extremely about X, Y, and Z views, but outlier content. Yeah. Outlier content. And, and, and as as soon as you start clicking on that, it starts to edge you more in that direction, video by video by video. And, um, it's something we need to be careful about. And, you know, we should have a, a bell every time we mention media literacy as being a critical part of the educational realm in 2019. But the bottom line is, is that if we aren't bringing these conversations in the classroom, nobody else will. And in fact, part of what's complicated in 2019, we're talking about a major presidential uh, election in 2020. We have uh, such interest in the process that you know, two dozen of the opposition party have, have, have raised their hand in an attempt to become the president of the United States. We are a year and a half, actually less so now, a year and a month, year, two months before the 2020 election and the, the election fever is here, much like it would have been in uh, February of 
1992 or 1996 or 2000. Uh, we are suddenly doing that months ahead of time. And I think part of the reason why that's happening is because of the mass explosion of social media. So I guess, you know, the bottom line for me, kids, let's be careful out there. Well, I, I will make a confession because tonight, um, talking about, you know, being pushed over the edge, uh, I am, I'm dreaming now of my next brisket that I'm going to smoke. And I blame the barbecuers on YouTube for, you know, creating this, this passion to smoke barbecue brisket in my yeah. backyard. So anyway, that can manifest itself in all sorts of ways. As we've mentioned on the show before, we do live in, in a seek and find world, right? And so right. this is part of what we need to prepare students to do, hopefully is to make good choices because at some point students are going to have that opportunity to actually have an unfiltered web browser and be able to go wherever they want. You know, what are they going to ask? What are they going to seek? What are they going to find? Um, there are fewer barriers today than ever before standing between uh, individuals and not only content, but other people. And that poses a heck of a lot of challenges, as we know, as as parents and whatever other hats we wear. So where to next, Dr. Neifer? Let's see. Um, I would like to talk about, uh, let's, let's do this one. Uh, Tom's Guide, which is a great hardware site, been around for 25 years now, posted an interesting uh, expose, probably not the right word, but uh, talking about USB 4. And I had not really understood that there was a USB 4 heading in this direction. I thought USB C was the replacement for USB 4. But as it turns out, things are complicated as they usually are. And in fact, there is going to be a fourth standard that will probably end up impacting very backwards compatible with a lot of other standards. But one of the things that um, apparently is true is that at some point, USB-C plus Thunderbolt plus old school USB, so the, the big square plugs that dominated for a long time, is going to be part of the USB 4 spec. And we don't need to talk about it in detail. Uh, honestly, I read the article twice. I'm not sure if I quite have my brain around this, but the reason why I'm laughing about this because I feel like I've just gotten to the point where USB-C uh, cables and peripherals, uh, that's that's what all of my, my Chrome world uh, utilizes for peripherals. I've standardized on that. I've got a good set of road cables and road adapters now, and it feels like they're going to change the standard again. Um, and also something super interesting is that USB 4 will not offer micro USB or um, uh, a micro and the one right before that the little chunkier plug that that that's not going to be part of the standard at all. I'm sure there will be ones available that. that per se, but, you know, they're starting to depreciate stuff that they consider to be old. So just when you thought you were ready for new stuff, the old stuff is going away. Yes. Well, and, and we had a USB uh, crisis, I think maybe last week on the show, the last two weeks where um, the MacBook Pro that I'm now having as my daily carry, I forgot my power supply. There's not another, you know, powerful enough USB-C charger uh, in the house. And so that was a panicked, honey, can I borrow your laptop for an hour? And thankfully, you know, my wife is very kind and generous and let it, let me do that. But um, I, it's going to be interesting. I know from an Apple standpoint, that that's one of the reasons at school that, that I was hesitant as a technology director to move to the next generation MacBook Air, because we do have an investment in USB-A devices. We're talking about smart board adapters, as well as you know, regular USB uh, thumb drives. And 
thinking about having to have that in inventory to be able to be ready to, you know, replace and supplement what, you know, somebody may have that breaks or, or uh, gets misplaced and, you know, just sort of being in adapter, um, uh, Hades, basically. Uh, anyway, we're the sign of the times, I suppose. So I, I am, though, thrilled that USB-C is so capable in terms of power. It's still a little tricky, right, because every cable we've talked about in the show isn't all created equal. But, yes, thank you for bringing us more news about USB-4. And the good news is that that is still probably a very bleeding-edge, early adopter, you know, kind of, uh, you know, challenge. But it's coming, so... Well, we have a big security section. Should we dig into that one? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let me hit first just this Flagstaff article. We didn't talk about that last week, I don't think. Um, Flagstaff, Arizona, closed school um, on September 4th because of a, quote, cybersecurity issue, the district website said. And I, th- I think that's really a sign of the times. Uh, fortunately, as I was the tech director at our school for four years. I mean, we had all kinds of phishing attacks and different attempted, you know, cyber events, but we didn't ever have our servers compromised, our network brought down. Uh, we've had some uh, very high profile situations at the end of last year, Oklahoma City Public Schools, which has, I think, about 45,000 students, um, had their student information system brought down by a ransomware attack. And then Broken Arrow Schools, which is in the Tulsa area northeast of us, uh, just at the start of school here in August. Um, one of the articles I read identified that it was a North Korean actor. And this particular analyst was being employed by that district and said the same actor had taken out Oklahoma City for a while. So this is a big thing, right? We are so reliant upon technology in our lives. And just like we would have a snow day and, okay, we can't drive to school, you know, the Internet goes down and um, we're not able to have school. Now, Jason, I know working as you do at the Montana, you know, uh, Virtual Academy, uh, it is all about online. So um, for, for, fortunately, I don't – cyber attacks came to Montana what, – what, was that about a year ago with that – attack where it was do, yeah. parent, parents were getting sent messages and whatnot. But uh, have you seen that kind of thing happen in Montana schools in terms of a broad scale internet outage? And then, you know, school has to be canceled or it's you know disrupted in a big way. Um, I, it's not happened to larger districts in Montana. It's happened to a couple of smaller districts. And um, we hear about that because obviously no internet means uh, no taking distance learning classes. Um, we are very conscious about that in the state virtual school. And um, I don't think we could do enough to train our teachers, to train our administrative users. Uh, we've turned on two-factor authentication where we can, uh, particularly for adult users, and we'll roll out new pieces of that later this year. Um, but it, it's a good lead-in to the other article, uh, actually a couple articles that, that I think are interesting to share this week, but um, there's a great article from Tech Radar on September 9th. It's worth your time to read this, but basically uh, people are the issue when it comes to security risks and that 99% of all security issues are because of human made an error, whether it was they were tricked and clicked on something they shouldn't have or bad passwords or whatever you want to account for that humans are the big problem here. And I say that not because, you know, you know, bad humans, but because this is an educational opportunity for schools, uh, especially talking to um, adults related to this. And I think we, uh, 
can't do enough that we can uh, should be constantly talking about this. And obviously you want to be extremely uh, conscious because you don't want to walk everything down so much so that it becomes you devoid of use, right? That's the, the quandary is balancing usefulness versus secure, but it is a very real factor in 2019 that humans are the uh, grand um, a problem when it comes to cybersecurity. And uh, a, a lot of this is student uh, related too. like, we need to obviously spend time uh, teaching students about this, but the best way to secure our house is make sure adults understand this as well. So that article about 99% of uh, true security issues being related to security, uh, human security, I think that's an important piece. Every time I had an opportunity to speak to our faculty as a technology director, I would always, you know, say something about security and safety. Um, and so, yeah, you mentioned two-step verification. We've talk, said this repeatedly. If you're not using two-step on every banking site, on every website that you can, turn it on. And you need to be using a different complex password on every single website. And the only way to maintain your sanity is to use to do that is to use a password manager like LastPass or 1Password or, or something like that. Uh, another quick security article. I don't normally troll the Flagstaff Arizona website checking out the news, but because of that article about the uh, cyber attack and school out, I found the article that is in our show notes, Pearson Ames Web 1.0 Data Breach. And this was from uh, August the 20th, 2019. Uh, personally identifiable, identifiable information released during a data security incident, including email addresses, first and last names, and limited cases, employee identification numbers, yada, yada. So this article, I think, speaks to the importance of schools and technology departments partnering to make sure they know what kinds of student information is being shared, where it is being shared, and then how all of that is being managed. And even though I have pivoted out of the technology director role, um, I am very much in the middle of our digital curriculum and actually setting up accounts for teachers and students and facilitating that because this is something in our school that has certainly grown and grown in terms of digital curriculum and also student level accounts. And where if you just have one or two of those, it might not be that big of a deal. It depends on how many, you know, kids a classroom teacher has but for them to set those things up but you you know don't have to have you know very many uh teachers and students to to have that grow into a big problem especially if you're going to be sending home a different username and a password and, and things are just going to get really complicated so uh we definitely i think need to be very serious about privacy we have a legal obligation to do that in the united states we are behind i think many of our colleagues in europe with respect to privacy uh, the GDPR, which we've talked about in past shows, you know, has pushed uh, tech companies to be doing, um, I think, doing better and doing more with privacy. Uh, but anyway, that was another security article. What else on the topic of security, Jason? Sure. Great article from CNET. And I think this is a, also goes back to kind of a digital literacy piece that you can share with students. Five reasons why you should never trust a free VPN. And if you are a teacher or someone who's maybe not necessarily at the core of tech, you probably know that if you offer free Wi-Fi in your school that's openly accessible to particularly students, students will do their absolute best to work their way around whatever filtering software you have. Now, this is not going to turn into a Jason and Wes Rand 
rant about filtering, uh, because that is something we both have a lot of concern about. But um, what is true is that teams will try to get around things that are blocking whatever they want. And so it is very common and popular for teams to download VPNs or virtual private network software that, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, provide them a free opportunity to try to tunnel through Internet. Now, I will say... I'm a personal user of commercial VPN services. VPNs are a critical part, I think, to security, particularly on public Wi-Fi. But something I do know is that VPNs are, generally speaking, um, uh, uh, being blocked in a lot of public Wi-Fi now. And I'm sure probably most schools uh, block VPNs as part of the way they lock down public Wi-Fi as a security-related issue. But um, there is five great reasons why in the CNN article, the free VPNs, and there are hundreds of them on both the iOS and Android platform. platform. They're not safe as purported. Uh, they are full of malware. They are advertising uh, 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 conduits for you as an end user. Oftentimes they are slow, 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 and that frankly you can do better with a paid VPN. But this is a unique opportunity to have a conversation with students saying that, like, I get why you want to move around the VPN, you know, Sally student, Sammy student, I get that, right? But when you're doing that, you're exposing yourself to other nastiness. And there have been stories for years about a lot of the, the nasty things that free VPNs can introduce to your system. If you're on an Android phone, for example, there can be straight up malware in, in VPNs for you to be aware of. But great fodder, I think, for conversations about digital literacy. And again, I think you can be frank. Like, I understand why people want to get around filtering in free Wi-Fi in a public school setting or for that matter, um, of, uh, uh, limits that might exist in coffee shop Wi-Fi. For example, I can't tunnel into a VPN with University of Montana public Wi-Fi. I can when I am on a private network that's for staff, faculty, and students. But um, I get that. But you're introducing yourself to risk, even though you have that convenience. Did we talk about the Google Calendar spam last time? Did we hit that? Well, a few times ago, we talked about that. Okay. I just wanted to mention, I've got that in there again. This was a Verge article on September 3rd. Google says a fix for that obnoxious calendar spam issue is on the way. I actually received that kind of spam on my personal Gmail. And this is an important thing to know that if you do, because it was like free Netflix, blah, blah, blah. And it was this long calendar event that spanned you know multiple weeks. You can actually now report a calendar event as spam. And so that's what I did. And on the whole topic of security and, and phishing with pH, you know, where people are trying to get us to put our usernames and passwords in and trick us, it's really important and helpful, especially in Gmail, to use the feature of reporting as phishing, report as spam, because that helps train Gmail and can, can reduce the amount of, you know, malware and, and phishing messages that people in your organization receive. So. I think that is right after we'd had that article in the show notes. I didn't remember if we had talked about it. Uh, I actually got one. So yeah, it's, it's out there. Um, I'd love to, we got about uh, maybe six or seven minutes till the top of the hour. I want to mention a China article. This is from today's Bloomberg and, and the title is the trade war spurs China's technology innovators into overdrive. This is a fascinating article and we have heard and may be familiar with this idea that, you know, Chinese companies have taken a lot of intellectual property from the United States. In fact, that was part of the reason allegedly why Google left China was, you know, concerns over identity. Um, I, 
and I say identity theft, intellectual property, intellectual property theft. And so lots of copycat technology. But what this article paints a picture of is that innovators in China are no longer, you know, largely copying Silicon Valley, but they are innovating on their own. And because China has such a robust manufacturing and high tech manufacturing capacity, the opportunity that innovators and entrepreneurs in the tech sector have in China to, to work so closely with their manufacturers and to respond and to be agile. Uh, wow. It just, this, this is a real, uh, a big deal. And, and I think I've mentioned on the show before, starting in 2007, um, I had four opportunities so far to go to China. Once was to Hong Kong, uh, twice to Shanghai, and then once to Hangzhou, which is, which is a small suburb of, of like what, you know, 15 million outside, whatever 20 million that Shanghai is. If you go to China, you know, you feel the buzz and, and I'm talking about the, the big cities. I haven't gone to rural China. You really feel a buzz of entrepreneur entrepreneurial spirit and it just it it's it's different man it's just like things are hopping and it the there's there's there was a feel there that i haven't felt before in in other large cities even chicago or new york um other places i you i came away wondering like what does this mean you know like should all of our kids be studying chinese you know we've we've heard people talk about is china going to be ascendant in the united states and all these kind of things and so anyway i think this article is really informative we get glimpses through news articles and news pieces into you know, trends in the future. And I think that's a, a value of, of this show. And I know we listen to other podcasts and things because when people filter stuff and they kind of see it through their lens, they, they interpret it. And so I just, I think this Bloomberg article is really uh, a thought provoking one in the trajectory of what we've seen with, seen with Huawei, right? We've talked about that on the show a lot. This, you know, competition and, and not such competition, right? The United States, you know, flat out saying, Hey, you are not only stealing secrets, but you're, you know, we think posing a threat to our national security because of things that you're putting into your software and your hardware and things like that. So uh, it is it's interesting times. And uh, again, to the point of things to talk about with kids, we need to dialogue about this. Right. We, we need students to be aware of what is happening with the United States and with China. I think sometimes because the politics are involved, we may want to just steer clear of that. And I'm not saying, you know, whatever class it is, let's just let's just talk about politics. But I do think the relationships between China and the United States and the ways in which technology is growing uh, and also just the relevance of China, the Chinese language, the Chinese economy. Um, it's it's pretty stunning. So highly commend that article. Would you like to pick out pick up another one before we do some geeks of the week. And I will not take over the end of the show. Like I did last week, I will defer to your leadership. I apologize for doing that last week. Quite all right. Quite all right, sir. But uh, let's see here. Maybe I'll just mention that. Yes, there was a lot of uh, Apple news this week, but there were additional Android phones that were released at IFA, which is a big European trade show. And I don't really know what to talk about there that that's of interest. Sony had a new phone. Nokia is releasing new phones. I will note for the record that Nokia is an interesting brand right now. It's not the Nokia of old, the really the creator of the mobile phone movement around the world. But the bottom line um, is that 
they have been purchased, their brand name has been purchased out by another company and they're releasing Nokia phones. The thing that's super interesting about Nokia phones, they've been super quick to release uh, Android updates. And so that makes them a unique manufacturer amongst other Android manufacturers. So additional Nokia phones coming out. Um, I also believe that Asus announced a gaming phone. Yep, that's correct. So they have the ROG phones, Republican gaming phones. Gaming phones are becoming a thing, which is super interesting. Um, and then Motorola announced a new low-end uh, uh, phone that will be an Android One phone, so we'll get updates. Um, so interesting stuff going on there. So if you are in the market for an Android phone, uh, Apple is the only game in town. There you go. Um, well, I think we probably want to geek of the week it, although let's answer Peggy's question coming in from the chat. She says, why would a person need a VPN more than just avoiding filtering, Dr. Neifer? I would say that I use a VPN because I do not trust public Wi-Fi. And so if you tunnel uh, in, in the Wi-Fi through a VPN, it would absolutely provide infinite more security than if you get on public Wi-Fi. And so... I don't use it in a place I trust, like the University of Montana, when I got the public Wi-Fi, which I do often on my phone. Um, that I'm less concerned about, although it's still obviously a risk. But whenever I go into super sketchy Wi-Fi, that will include our friends at Starbucks or any of the coffee shops that I frequent and work. Um, I feel like it is my obligation to use a VPN, especially when I'm doing work stuff, as I do trade in student data. It shouldn't really matter if you have secured uh, connections, SSL security on your systems. But I think there's enough skeezy things out there and people that are really are trying to steal data from you. The least uh, open I can be, the better off I am. I'll tell a fast story and then we'll we'll geek of the week it and get out of here. Uh, back in probably 2010, I was uh, teaching as an adjunct uh, once a week at the University of North Texas. And I would drive down there and, and stay a couple nights. And that's how I got my, my first three chapters of my dissertation written. Shout out to Dr. Gerald Knezik there. Uh, I was loving to frequent some different restaurants uh, around the square there in Denton. And I vividly remember this because at the Black Hat conference, somebody had come out with a with an extension for Firefox called Fire Sheep. And what this extension let you do at a coffee shop was sit there and view all the connections. And that was before the push for SSL. So pretty much everybody's WordPress site. And there's still a lot of sites out there that don't have secure socket layers or SSL encrypted. And that meant that you're on the same coffee shop Wi-Fi and in the clear, all of these passwords are being shared. And so, of course, this show is probably going to be decrypted or not decrypted, but it's going to be like converted to text. So let's, let's not, you know, get Wes in great trouble. I didn't do anything malicious with this, but I did see other people's Facebook accounts when I was there and was able to click and then be on their Facebook account. And then also on WordPress, I did leave a comment on somebody's WordPress site that said, you know, something about, you know, SSL, but that, that was that was an example of like a script kitty tool, right? Because I wasn't and don't consider myself a hacker, but oh my gosh, that really opened up my eyes to why VPNs are important, why public Wi-Fi is dangerous. As you said, because of SSL, things are better than they were. But yes, I don't think at an airport or any kind of coffee shop, um, I, I choose to tether to my phone in those kinds of situations unless I absolutely have to do you know something else. And um, when we went to China, I had to each time get a VPN, and that was to be able to get back 
uh, to websites and things like that, that, that I was using because of the great firewall of China. And they've cracked down on that, I think considerably since that time. I'll make a quick comment. I also use the same tool. It was 2011. I was sitting in a Starbucks in Washington, DC, and it just came out and I was sitting on my laptop doing work. And I was like, Oh, this is interesting. I installed it and got onto the public Wi-Fi that was available in that coffee shop. And I was able to see the person's next to me's Facebook account. And it, it creeped me out enough that I immediately uninstalled it, but I've been, uh, well, I, I get a little more cautious probably every two or three months when it comes to the internet, just because of the nature of those tools, but the threats are real. All right. I will defer to you to, to, to take us out when ready, Dr. Neifer. Sure. Well, let's start with our Geeks of the Week. Um, I would like to share a great YouTube channel. I was going to do something else tonight, but I decided that uh, I'm excited about enough about this YouTube channel. I love cooking YouTube channels. I've always been a big fan of cooking television, and YouTube channels actually feel a little less, I don't know, um, artificial to me. Like, I love the Food Network, but in a lot of cases, I'm not going to pull off the things that happen on Iron Chef, for example. But I can pull off a lot of things that happen there. But there is a really commercial channel. It's the Bon Appetit YouTube channel. I'm absolutely in love with it. I love all the people on the channel. The personalities are great. But the reason why I'm mentioning this channel is they have a really great series on there called Gourmet Makes where a chef named Claire, a pastry chef named Claire, remakes popular commercial products in a homemade kitchen environment. And I just noticed when we were had gotten started and I clicked onto YouTube that she, tonight she released her video and she makes her own peanut M&Ms. And so I'm excited to see that. The reason why I like this channel is because we oftentimes don't focus on, uh, in schools, the maker culture happening in consumer science classes. And as it turns out, I know a lot of amazing family consumer science teachers that have really been running maker spaces for decades, right? The original makers in schools are family consumer science teachers, but this notion of remaking commercial products and figuring out what makes it tick and experimenting over and over again, Claire has done a variety of products, everything from Starburst to M&M's Tonight to Gourmet Oreos and having to experiment over and over and over again until she gets it right. Great message for kids and a wonderful, inspiring message about being creative in the kitchen. So that's the Bon Appetit YouTube channel, one of my favorite YouTube channels. And weirdly, I've not been edged towards more radical cooking doing it. Cool. Well, my Geek of the Week, uh, Geeks of the Week are actually word cloud generators. I needed to do, make a, a new word cloud the other night. And so there are ones that will charge you, but you really don't need to do that. There's some really good free ones. And so the new one that I just used and liked was called, or is called Word It Out. And I use that uh, to make a little word cloud for a blog post that I wrote this week. And then one that I learned about this summer, just fantastic, called Voyant Tools. Uh, this is one that um, we have put into a project that I'm going to hopefully be doing in a couple weeks with my students um, called Unpacking and Understanding uh, Media Controversy. And anyway, it has just a lot of really great analysis. So if you're not familiar with word cloud, you can copy and paste a bunch of text, generally dump it in and it'll show you, you know, what words are, are larger based on frequency that they occur, et cetera. Um, or you can just make your own word cloud. And that's what I did with worded out. Um, cause I couldn't find, you know, uh, it really might match at all on, on deep fakes. And so I made my own little deep fakes media literacy word cloud. So those are in the show notes. And, uh, if you know of a better word cloud tool, I'd love to, to know about that. Cause I think those are very practical tools that can give increased visibility into patterns and things like that within a text and are an, an interesting way to 
take some traditional literacy passages and then have a visual literacy twist on them. So let me know if you have another favorite one. Peggy has put into the chat. I'll bring this up. Uh, Shelly, Shelly Terrell's great blog post about free word clouds and activities. And you can find that on shellyterrell.com slash wordclouds.html. Thank you, Peggy. Excellent. Thanks, Wes. And where can people find you on the internet? I am W Fryer on Twitter. My blog, speedofcreativity.org, is where I share an infrequent podcast, but now an increasingly frequent blog post. And now that I'm back in the classroom and I'm also uh, pouring content into a curriculum website that I have just started. And that is uh, our middle division technology website, which you can find at mdtech.cassady.org. Excellent. And I am on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. I'm also the Tech Savvy Administrator in Residence for the Northwest Council for Computer Education. Uh, I blog there at blog.ncc.org, an excellent place to go to find out more about EdTech. That's enough about us. This thing we do is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast on Wednesday nights. We broadcast live via YouTube and also on YouTube video, I'm sorry, Facebook video streaming. Uh, you can go to our website, www.edtechsr.com to find all the links from this week's show, show notes as we release the podcast each week and also every article we refer to uh, or even research for the show, whether we uh, ultimately talk about the article or not. You can download this podcast anywhere, finer podcasts are aggregated. You can also see our YouTube channel to see the live video as we record it, or you can also see past episodes. We are each Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central, 3 a.m. UTC. We kind of guess at that one. If you're in Britain, you have to look up to yourself. And we hope that you'll join us live. But in case you can't, feel free to download either at our website or where you download podcasts. And we hope to see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Thanks.